old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 21. Life on 77 Squadron had settled down to a routine, if it ever really could on a fighter squadron. I'd been asked to take over the job of the daily planner, who detailed who would fly to fulfil our commitments for the week. As such, I kept track of who was available to fly, what level of ability they were, and tried to give everyone an even number of hours. Months varied, but it was common to get around 20 hours a month, leading to an annual total of over 200 hours. As the planner, I could have given myself an unfair amount of flying, but this would soon be noticed by my fellow pilots, who by now referred to me as NTP, Nick the Pom, and made public. This meagre total would have been laughed at by the average airline pilot, who often topped out at over 900 hours a year. But after 19 years of continuous military flying, I only accrued a total of 3,676 hours. The big difference was the quality of flying that we did, and although the Hornet had an autopilot, I barely remember ever using it. For example, a low-level attack sortie would often begin the day before, particularly for the leader of the mission, with route planning, map preparation, and because it was Australia, piling a flight plan. Apparently, every cocky, shit-kicker or jackaroo in the outback with a farm strip a decrepit radio-less old air truck needed to know exactly where and when the Royal Australian Air Force might be a day in advance. Knowing the attention to no terms that professional pilots give, I wonder how many actually read them before jumping into their flying utes. Answers on a postcard, please. What's more, once we left the tyrannical embrace of air traffic control to descend to low level, we knew that all hell would break loose should we fail to emerge back into radio contact within two minutes of our declared time. This made any tactical changes to our plan just about impossible. I was used to a freer form of military flying, where we could act completely independently, under the same rules as other airspace users, but I wasn't there to try and change the way the country operated, so kept my lip well buttoned. There were a few low-flying areas where random flights could be conducted, but they were small and well-known and didn't fit the requirements for good training. The leader would brief the sortie, which required thought and organisation and could last an hour if it was a complex mission involving outside agencies, for example. The rest of the formation would need to prepare for their individual roles in the flight and be ready for what would be asked of them. A knowledge of the weapons to be simulated and the attack profiles, etc. Thirty minutes would probably be allocated just to get out to our jets and get airborne, remembering that we had to manually enter every coordinate for our route, each requiring a bunch of alphanumerics followed by an arrow check to ensure it all looked good. 
Finally, we'd be off to enjoy 90 minutes of sweaty fun for rushing around in the red dust of the Australian outback before throwing the jets back at the runway, parking up and debriefing what had just been done in great detail, often for two or three times the duration of the actual mission so that we could squeeze the absolute maximum benefit out of our flight. There was certainly plenty of variety to our flying. In one month, I flew some practice bombing attacks both day and night on the Evans Head weapons range north of us by 230-odd miles. This was followed by a four-ship formation demonstration of ground attack on our own airfield as part of an open-day celebration for the public. Then night radar bombing on the Beecroft range at Jarvis Bay, about 150 miles south, Then we bombed and sank a tugboat before flying off to New Zealand. There's actually a little more to that story, the tugboat that is. The Murray Porter was a 363-tonne tug registered under the flag of Australia in 1966. She plied her trade faithfully, pushing and pulling vessels in and out of Sydney Harbour until the 17th of November 1987, when she met her fate, courtesy of the Royal Australian Air Force. Just when she was coming of age, at only 21, when the world should have been her oyster, she was taken in tow and dragged out into the open ocean between Sydney and Newcastle, where her position was noted and a temporary danger area declared around her. Early that morning, 16 Hornets from Royal Australian Air Force Base Williamtown were prepared with live Mark 82 500-pound slick bombs in quiet corners of the airfield to prevent sympathetic detonations in case of an accident. In turn, four formations of four taxied out and took off, heading out to sea on what would be the Murray Porter's last day afloat. The first two four-ships were from 77 Squadron, the following aircraft from 3 Squadron, the dodgy lot next door. The first formation attacked and then it was our turn. Our leader swung his aircraft onto the attack heading and in turn we followed in trail. We'd accelerated to attack speed and were skimming the sea as the miles counted down. With the ANAPG-65 radar searching for the target and the waves whipping past, I became a little anxious, but then I saw the little brick-shaped radar return that indicated the Murray Porter, very near to where I expected it. With the radar locked, the bombing symbology appeared, a line stretching up the head-up display. Beneath me, the ballistic computers were calculating my energy levels against the distance left to go, and at about five miles, I manoeuvred the aircraft flight vector onto the line and put the master switch on, and with the burners in, I pulled hard up. As the nose came up, I knew I would be theoretically vulnerable to a ship's defence system, so I hit the chaff and flares button near the left canopy rail and the pre-programmed sequence, not that we actually had any to play with in those days, were fired and I pressed the commit button on the control stick to allow the bomb to come off. 
I concentrated on keeping everything steady, smoothly holding about 4G as the aircraft symbol rose towards the release queue. And when the two met, I felt a small bump on the airframe as the 500 pounds of ordnance fell away. A second or more of pull and I inverted to watch the torpedo-shaped bomb flying below me, still climbing to the apogee of its arc. In the real world, I'd be banging another sequence of defensive decoys and diving back down on a safe egress heading, but this was too good not to watch. For a while, I gently hung in my straps, formating on seven and a half feet of matte green steel, stuffed full of 80-20 mix of trinitrotoluene and aluminium powder, added to improve the heat output of the TNT and the power of the blast. I couldn't see the fuse arming, but knew that as soon as it had fallen away from its station, a simple wire strap had pulled a pin that allowed the propeller on the front to spin up, freeing the pistol to operate on impact. I didn't descend down with the weapon, but stayed high out of the way as it turned tail on and fell out of sight. I switched my gaze to the tugboat, and realised why the radar had taken so long to find it. The once-proud Murray Porter had no visible superstructure to speak of. It had all been wiped off the hull by the first attack, and it was little more than the outline of the hull sticking out a few feet above the waterline. The leader's bomb impacted as I watched, and the wreck disappeared beneath a bright white-yellow flash, black smutty smoke and a fast-expanding cloud of white shockwaves. Then my effort detonated in more or less the same spot, and as I eased out of the way I could see a plume of water rise just to beam the ship, and then another hit from our last two bombs. As we taxied into park in front of the squadron, we had smug smiles on our faces as the three squadron boys were sent to park on the other side of the airfield amongst the arming revetments, as they had brought all their bombs back home. By the time they had lined up to have a shot at it, we had sent the 130-foot, 40-metre-long tugboat to the bottom of the Tasman Sea. Three days later, I climbed into another of our clean new jets to head back out over the Tasman Sea and not return. No, I wasn't looking for Australia's Bermuda Triangle, but starting a journey of 1,200 miles, of which only 10 would be spent overland. We were deploying from Willie to Royal New Zealand Air Force Base, Ohakia, on what was for the Australians part of a long-term mutual commitment, but for me was an amazing new experience full of weird stuff I hadn't done before. The Kiwis had a small boutique air force. They had a few Strike Masters, a weapons-capable version of the Jet Provost that I flew during my basic training, that they operated as a jet trainer and a weapons trainer, and nicknamed the Blunty but their main combat unit was 75 Squadron, which flew the Douglas A4K Skyhawk, initially acquired from the US Navy 
but boosted to a complement of 20 aircraft by the purchase of 10 A4Gs from the Royal Australian Navy. The flight was fairly long and close to our maximum range, so we were glad to break into the circuit and touch down on New Zealand's soil. However, we were under strict instructions not to lift our canopies on the taxi in. As we all parked up, an official from what was probably the New Zealand Ministry of Ag and Forestry came around to each of us in turn and we cracked our canopies so he could pass up a can of insecticide. Masks up as we emptied those cans into our little cockpit space, just in case we were the reincarnation of the superhero Flyman, and our ground crew kept us amused whilst we killed off our alter egos. Before long and smelling of DDT, we were off to the mess to enjoy my first pint of beer for a year or more. Not that the Australians don't drink beer, just not pints, or certainly not back then. They had a confusing array of sizes of beer glasses, which ranged from 4 to 15 imperial fluid ounces. In theory, they had a 20-ounce pint, but nobody wanted one because there was the faint chance a modicum of warmth might have got through the frozen glass into the frozen beer so that you could taste it. These glasses had names that changed depending on what state you were in. That's geographical, not of intoxication, which varied from small, fuzzy, Shetland or Pony, through beer, butcher, bobby, six, seven and glass, to midi, handle, pot or ten, and eventually a schooner, or possibly a pint, which wasn't a pint, if you see what I mean. My favourite wasn't the small bottle known as a stubby, but its much larger cousin, only found up north, called the Darwin stubby. I digress. Whilst I imagined Australia of the 1980s to be a very pleasant mix of Europe and America, New Zealand had a much stronger British flavour, in the nicest way, with good manners, cream teas, a more laid-back approach to life, and brown beer in proper dimpled glasses with handles. I felt like I'd come home, albeit a home of the 1950s. Part of this was down to the motor cars everybody used. New Zealand had a highly punitive import tax on new cars from abroad. As a result, everyone hung on to what they had for as long as possible. I imagine it was a bit like Cuba after the US embargo, where classic old American sedans with huge tail fins cruise around like a post-war movie studio. Since it was the days before the Japanese car manufacturers invaded, the cars in New Zealand were old British models. Austins, Morrises, Daimlers, Rovers, Woolseys and Triumphs, all in excellent condition, mainly due to the lack of salt on the roads that rots British cars at home. Indeed, despite being on the bottom of the globe, Everything felt fine until my world was literally turned upside down when I strolled up to the bar and stood beside a very familiar RAF pilot I had known since my earliest days in the military, John Fiennes. <laughs> 
John, who we could tickle until he hyperventilated himself into complete unconsciousness, who could sleep in the bath until he looked like a white maggot, John, who became disorientated while supersonic and a lightning at night over the sea, recovering by pulling some 10 Gs, thereby wrecking his aircraft forever, and last seeing a negative height on his altimeter before falling unconscious, John, who had been a fellow instructor on Hawks and was now with me drinking beer some 12,000 miles from home. Weird. Whilst John went about his work for the RAF Central Flying School by checking out some of the Kiwi instructors, come Monday we began work with the A4s, the story of which I shall have to put off until my next logbook tale. Suffice to say, what I have described up to now occurred in just the first 20 days of November 1987, and the rest of the month would include combat missions against the Skyhawks, airway refueling from them, ship strikes against targets towed by their Navy frigates, and visual dive bombing at night under Lepus flares. Tune in for the next exciting instalment of Flyman. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out about that on its website, airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also available as a podcast in its own right, and if you enjoy listening to the stories, then how about leaving us a nice review? We'd be very grateful. And thanks very much for listening.